The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Arthi Shaw. I'm executive editor for Provoke Media and host for today's episode. So today we pick up on a topic that has been dominating the news cycle right now, which is saying a lot considering the state of affairs in the U.S. right now. Um, it's a conversation that we started uh, at Provoke Global last fall around fighting the infodemic, how communicators can combat the world's epidemic of science misinformation. And because, of course, the situation around the pandemic is continuously evolving, we decided to revisit this topic and bring back Greg Amrafel, um, who's Chief Marketing Officer at the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation. Greg was at our conference in, at Provoke Global in October. Welcome back, Greg. Thank you, Arthi. It's great to be here. Yeah, and we've also um, brought into the discussion Andrew Shi, who's Executive Vice President of Corporate and Public Affairs at Mbooth Health. Welcome, Andrew. Arthi, Greg, great to see both of you. So, you know, I guess, the, you know, the first place to start here is, you know, the biggest change, or I guess there's a few big changes, but one of the big changes since, since we last talked about this, of course, is the vaccine um, has been approved for use in, in the U.S. And I'd love to hear your perspectives around um, how has that changed the conversation around trust? Well, I'll start. Uh, I, you know, I, I think number one, uh, it's given all of us a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the the question is, how long is that tunnel, uh, and what's what's it going to be like getting getting to the light? Uh, so, you know, I think, um, you know, on on one level, it's easy to be excited about that, and everyone wants to believe uh, in the end of this pandemic. Uh, but it introduces new challenges too, because. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily going to be an easy path. We're already seeing this, that the rollout of the vaccine has not been straightforward uh, so far. Uh, and that calls, you know, calls for vigilance while vaccines are happening uh, are being met with, with some skepticism. Um, so I, I think the messages that we've learned over the last year, and by the way, yesterday marked a year since China reported its first death. Uh, you know, the, the lessons we've learned still apply that we have to um, we have to really sound a strong message about vigilance. Uh, we have to have, um, you know, uh, concerted uh, belief and advocacy for that message, uh, driven by driven by science. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just not going to change between now and the time when uh, when we can safely go back to work and back to school. And you know, I I agree with all of that. And I I would add that when we think about the COVID communications environment, the only constant is change. When I think about what's changed between when Greg was speaking at the Provoke Summit and today, in some ways, the environment has changed utterly. We, are now, we now see that the public debate has gone from being focused on masks and social distancing to do these vaccines work? When will these vaccines be approved? And now suddenly it's who should be getting these vaccines and how are they being distributed? So everything's moving very quickly. But at the same time, I think there's a fundamental underlying truth, which is that you're gonna wake up every morning and something will have changed, which I think for us as communicators is exceptionally challenging because when you're thinking about particularly the type of science-based analysis that an organization like IHME or that the CDC is doing, those analyses take time to do. And so you're talking about this rapidly changing environment where you're talking to your scientists about what their findings are and then trying to figure out 
what's the most important public health message in here and how do we communicate it? And you need to turn that around so quickly because if you wait two weeks, that information, that guidance will be out of date. And I think that's something that Greg and his team at IHME know extraordinarily well, having seen how hard they've worked since, frankly, the beginning of the epidemic to rapidly turn around that kind of communications. Um, and so it's this rapid turnaround environment where you're constantly trying to stay on top of the cycle. So, you know, you, you referenced, you know, the fact that every day the only constant is something is changing. And, and Greg, you had mentioned that, you know, there is this light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, but to the point that there's constantly new information, like, for instance, with new strains and questioning, you know, how do they work? Does the vaccine work against them at some point? You know, how quickly will, will the virus mutate so that it's not... Um, easily um, dealt with with a vaccine. And then of course, to your point about all the distribution questions. So with so many of these moving parts that are changing on a daily uh, basis, um, is there a North Star that, that you can kind of rely on as public health communicators right now in order to sort of maintain trust, even as you're having to change, you know, and, and not only, you know, change what the messaging is, but also to be able to have to say, I don't know, like we don't know certain things at this point. Like what can be, you know, is there sort of a fundamental kind of tenant that you can hold on to as a public health communicator right now? Look, the, the, the name of the game is saving lives uh, and that, that hasn't changed. Uh, and I think as, as Andrew points out, uh, you know, the, the, the dynamic nature of this, of this pandemic has, has humbled all of us. And so, um, you know, I think uh, given that orientation to saving lives, I think it, it helps us underscore points that we know uh, are, are proven out by science to save lives, things like wearing masks and maintaining social distance. Uh, and it also highlights for us uh, the opportunity to say we don't know. Uh, you know, interestingly, to start this, this year, we've not been able to produce a new forecast yet uh, of, of COVID. Um, because, and we've been honest and straightforward in communicating this because the holiday data was, was such a mess. Uh, and so we could have put out a forecast just to maintain our drumbeat, but we thought it, it could have really set the wrong expectation. Uh, and, you know, while people would love to see us provide new information, they also seem to have been understanding uh, that uh, accuracy in the face of uh, a very dynamic situation is, is paramount. So, Andrew, is there anything you wanted to add to that? I, I think um, Greg got at it uh, about being being honest and being humble about what we can and can't assess. Uh, but but you also, I, I don't want people to overlook this, Greg. I think you raised a really important point in the initial part of your response there, which is that there are these fundamental truths about masks and social distancing to save lives that haven't changed. So despite this incredibly dynamic environment, there are a set of core messages that responsible leaders have been communicating consistently throughout the pandemic, and that needs to continue. Because regardless of whether or not there's a vaccine available, regardless of how widespread access to it is, as long as COVID is with us, those preventive measures like masks and social distancing are going to take lives. So, so on that on that note, so I mean, are are you having to triage sort of what is the most important message that you want to communicate to the public at any given moment? Because there does seem to be some amount of fatigue, right? Um, and you know, between you know the fact that wearing masks is still 
important, um, you know, the herd immunity, we don't really know the date on when that will be achieved, that social distancing still matters, that the vaccines are safe, um, that, you know, I mean, there's just so many different pieces of information that they were, that you all are trying to communicate to the public. Are you having to triage and say, okay, let's focus on getting, make sure that this message resonates, or are you, you know, just kind of moving forward with all, with all of those, because they're all so important? I mean, the short answer is yes, we, we are having to, to triage, we are having to, uh, you know, decide how to focus our attention. Uh, you know, right, right now that, that story continues to be on the importance of mask wearing and social distancing. Um, we also are, you know, well aware that the, the sort of public and political appetite for uh, strong lockdowns it has, has evaporated. Um, so where we're, we're trying to get to is an articulation of the, the sort of nuanced lockdowns that can be most effective. Uh, and, and we have a lot of data to react to now. Uh, you know, one example is, is school reopening, uh, that in several places they have been able to successfully reopen schools and solve for that. Um, so we're, we're evaluating uh, scenarios in which, that, in which that can work so we can make clear recommendations by, by location. When we do that, we're going to have to be very focused because um, it is such a complex and dynamic uh, story. Uh, you know, we, we can't talk about you know, the whole wide range of factors. I think we're going to have to talk about um, something something very, very particular in order for that message to land. You know, as a, oh, but, go ahead. You, you mentioned, you know, audience fatigue, and I think that's it's also fatigue amongst the media. They've been mm -hmm. reporting on this pandemic and on mitigation steps like lockdowns and social distancing for months upon months. And, and we all know in our business, it's, it's the nature of the beast to look for the next new thing and to report on the new story. So it's very challenging to be able to consistently convey these messages to encourage these responsible protective behaviors. Um, and so looking at where the narrative is going and looking at ways that we can you know, shoehorn those messages in and something that's commenting on what's happening today. So when we're, people are reporting on vaccines, okay, let's talk about vaccines. Let's talk about the potential impact of vaccines. Then as we're doing that, our primary message is going to be, despite the vaccine rollout, we still need to be taking steps to protect our community. That's, that's an excellent point. So as the media maybe moves on to a different part of, the, of this pandemic story, is to sort of reiterate some of these pieces that maybe they've, they've moved on from. Right. Um, and, and let's let's talk specifically for a moment about social media, because as we all know, that is that is where a lot of this misinformation proliferates and 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 finds um, audience and interaction. Um, what are you all doing specifically around social media and combating misinformation there? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know that the word combat is the right is the right verb um, because uh, going head to head with um, very adamant uh, people. Uh, who may or may not be informed by science um, hasn't served us. Uh, you know, I think the overall lesson we take is that we just have to stay constant. We have to keep putting out uh, good science, uh, explain it as clearly and as simply as possible, uh, and you know, uh, and also continue to listen because sometimes that the criticism we hear uh, has has fueled really important changes uh, in our models and projections. Uh, but but when we do that, that we just keep coming with uh, with new information uh, and you know put it out through social media, put it out through traditional media, 
because those those channels seem to reinforce each other. Uh, and I think we've seen that when we do that, we can we can kind of outlast the less informed uh, critics and and see our influence grow. So one of the like looking forward, it's like the next challenge is going to be as people start to get their second shots and the vaccines start to take effect. Um, there is going to be a lot of confusion around what's safe, what's not. Um, are you know are, are are people going to have an have a an urge to just you know like you said I mean drop all of these other protocols that 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 will still be required um, at least for the foreseeable future. So as as we start looking at at, at folks getting their second shots and as as um, the vaccines start to take effect, um, what will be sort of the core communications um, messages that you want to you'll want to get across? I mean, I'll take a shot at that, Andrew. I'm sure you've got a perspective, and I would say this is still kind of a work in progress. But look, as as you say, Arthi, the 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 end game here is is herd immunity, which is the point at which enough people uh, have either gotten a vaccine or been infected for the disease to stop spreading and effectively go away. Uh, there is a hard way to reach that, and there is an easy way. The hard way is letting infections run rampant at the cost of many more lives and much suffering and much economic loss. Uh, and the easy way is to, you know, is to continue to protect ourselves, to stay vigilant with really common sense, cost-effective measures like masks and social distancing uh, while vaccines can reach a critical mass. Uh, and, you know, look, I, I know the vaccine rollout is not going as smoothly as people hope. Uh, we take a lot of faith um, from the example of flu vaccine, which in the U.S. reaches 180 million people over the course of about 90 days every every year. There is very strong incentive for it to move faster than that with COVID. Uh, we just need to we just need to work through the kinks. Uh, so we think we think that can happen. We think that people should take hope from that. We know I know uh, I'm dying to see my friends and family. I can't wait to hug my mom and dad. Uh, but you know, we, we can stay patient for a few more months while, while everyone gets vaccinated. And if it means staying, staying at a distance and maintaining uh, mask wearing, I, I, that feels like a really acceptable, acceptable cost. And I think it's going to take a really concerted communication and public education effort to make that, that happen. I mean, the, the, the big public health word for this is disinhibition. When people feel that they're at risk, that they're threatened, they're more likely to protect themselves, to do the things that are going to keep them safe. But the less they feel that this is a crisis, that this is an urgent uh, threat to their personal health, the more likely they are to take risks. And I think as people, more people become vaccinated and perhaps, knock on wood, death rates start coming down, we may see that disinhibition. Uh, and that's, you know, the early part of my career was spent focusing primarily on HIV AIDS. And, that, and I'm old enough that that was right around the period when HIV treatments were beginning to roll out and become more widely available around the world. And this was a critical issue that the HIV communications community was dealing with at the time. Everyone's very excited about and everyone wants to talk about this, these amazing treatments, which is wonderful. But how do we get people to understand that they are still at risk and they still need to take steps to protect themselves? One of the um, projects I worked on was in the early 2000s um, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They, they saw this risk emerging that everyone was talking about HIV treatment, but no one was talking about prevention, which means more people were putting themselves at risk and being infected. And so they funded a, a global HIV prevention working group, which is basically 
a bunch of experts that essentially just served as an advocacy and communications platform, making sure that they maintained focus on these messages about prevention, about protecting yourselves. And, and I think we may need to see that, here, at least here in the United States over the coming year, as people increasingly see that, oh, maybe this isn't as big of a risk as it used to be. Maybe I can take more steps, be a little bit less cautious, but there will need to be a concerted public education effort, ideally led by our government, to help people recognize that they need to continue protecting them. I, I want to circle back on, on, on the government piece in, in, in just a second. Um, but, you know, just closing off, off the vaccine, you know, one at the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like there were there, there were largely two camps. There was sort of the the science driven camp about washing hands and social distancing and masks and those um, that sort of wanted to defy that. But now it seems like even within the science community, there's some conflicting, you know, do we just do we do fast distribution or fair distribution? What's better? Is 70% efficacy enough? Um, do we do one dose like they're doing in the UK just to get the vaccine around as many people as possible or two? So what do you do when there is not a necessarily a consistent message even even within the science community? I mean, normally the course these things take is that these questions are addressed and answered through research within the scientific community, and then it becomes communicated more broadly. And I think what we're what we're seeing with COVID is the the sausage making process become public. And everyone's and, and the media are jumping on that and they're covering, well, there's this finding and there's this contradicting finding and what should people be doing? And I, I think one of the, the biggest challenges that we as a global community in the United States particularly face is that we don't have, there's no clear leader you can point to who will give you the authoritative answer. The closest we have is Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. God bless his 82-year-old <laughs> heart. Um, but, uh, but even still, I mean, you, you, as you said, Arthi, there's, there's this ongoing debate about what should be the, the truth that people cling to and that people recognize. Um, and I think for, for those of us who are, you know, not, not working directly with Dr. Fauci, uh, it's really just a question of making sure that our own communications are based on our experts' best understanding of what steps people should be taking and not stepping outside of our bounds. I mean, if we're not the vaccine distribution experts, that's probably not an area where we should be putting forward expert opinion. So, so on this point about trust and the government, um, you know, we have a new administ administration being sworn in next week. Um, and with the Biden administration, how would you recommend that they deal with some of these issues around trust, especially, um, you know, in the last year when we did see some, you know, some institutions like the CDC and to some degree the FDA that had have traditionally been apolitical become politicized, um, how would you recommend that these these institutions um, kind of regain public trust? You know, I, I think we have to look at uh, organizations like CDC and, and FDA as to some degree serving incredibly important and useful scientific functions, uh, but also that their communications uh, were built kind of in an era of uh, you know, broadcast TV and, and, you know, a few major newspapers governing, uh, governing the public dialogue, uh, you know, in an era where information proliferates on the internet, uh, the idea of kind of a command and control communication infrastructure uh, just ceases to work. And so I, I think the role that, um, that the Biden administration can play is to insist that information flow more freely uh, to organizations like IHME, but all, you know, the, the many other 
uh, modelers and forecasters who are you know expert at at sort of making sense of the data uh, and working very quickly and cooperatively to uh, to land on um, interpretations uh, so that uh, so that we can arrive at truth more quickly uh, with less reliance on you know one one smart bureaucrat in Atlanta. Uh, you know, and I think there have been some pretty good examples of how uh, command and control approaches over the last year have really slowed down response or led to, um, you know, kind of um, uh, poor response efforts. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that information is going to flow. Uh, and I'm also hopeful that, um, you know, in a, in a country like the U.S. that represents now over a quarter of total global cases and, and, and total global deaths, uh, that just stepping in and asserting federal leadership uh, in co in coordination with with governors uh, is going to is going to go a long way. If we can if if we if the government can demonstrate uh, that it is asserting leadership and following through on what it says it will do uh, in the spirit of protecting lives and getting the economy back uh, back to normal, uh, I think that's going to go a long way because there are just so many different forms of suffering people are going through that are influencing their, their perspective on what is true and what is not. And I'm, I'm optimistic that the incoming administration will recognizes the importance of this kind of openness and this kind of leadership. I mean, we're, we're recording this podcast on January 12th. And there's an op-ed in the New York Times today by Rochelle Walensky, who's the in, going to be the incoming CDC director. And it talks about this very issue, about the issue of trust in CDC, trust in America's public health officials. Uh, and you know, there are no great revelations or insights in what she writes, but it's very reassuring to see someone who's coming into that position who speaks very frankly about the importance of rebuilding trust. I, I think, Unfortunately, rebuilding trust in our public health institutions and officials is going to be the work of a generation. Uh, I think we've seen such a, a crisis of mistrust and misinformation over the past year during the COVID epidemic uh, that rebuilding that, and particularly in those parts of our society where that trust has cratered dramatically, is going to take a very long time. And it will take a consistent series of leaders who do, as Greg was saying, who do share information openly and honestly, provide clear leadership, clear vision, and to a point that we raised earlier in our discussion, are upfront about what we know and what we don't know. No, I think that that's quite humbling to think about. This is this will be the work of a, of a generation. And, and you know, one thing you can you all can start thinking about is well, I'll, I'll end this podcast with a with a question around what what are what's the key lesson learned around public health and communications for future pandemics. So I will, I will, we'll, we'll, we'll don't answer that yet. We'll, we'll, we'll end on that, but you can, you can kind of start thinking about that. Um, but one thing I do want to talk about is um, looking at the media a little bit more closely. And one is, I mean, are there stories in the media that you wish would be covered um, or covered perhaps differently um, than the narratives that, that, that seem to dominate? Um, is there, are there any gaps in, in the media coverage? Yeah, I mean, I, I can think of a few. Some of them, I, I think, are, are obvious. I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm really interested in understanding what the barriers are to vaccine distribution, and I feel like there's, there's much more to, to learn there. Um, you know, fast versus fair is a really, is a really great characterization of that, as you, as you said earlier, Arthi. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in knowing more about what kinds of lockdowns, what sort of nuanced lockdowns can be effective during this liminal stage between 
uh, you know, full-blown uh, pandemic and and uh, reaching herd immunity, uh, we're going to need we're going to need more vigilance. What what can work? Um, you know, I, I'm also interested in understanding the, more explicitly the trade-offs between lockdowns and economics, and I think uh, the press has portrayed that as in very in very short term. Uh, in, in very short terms. So the, the key question is, what is the long-term effect? You know, what, why, why is an, inter, uh, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure if it means that our recovery is going to be accelerated economically? Uh, so that's, I think, an, a, a fertile area. And then, the, look, the, the key question in front of all of us, media, uh, researchers, et cetera, is when will it be safe to go back to work and go back to school? Uh, and what what does safety mean? And how is that going to vary place by place? Because saying that the U.S. has reached herd immunity isn't going to apply if uh, if one county in one state uh, has very low very low levels of vaccination uh, or has a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Um, so I, I think there's there's going to need to be a you know kind of a, a drill down from the national data to the state data to the county data uh, that um, will be really important to keep this from becoming an endemic, uh, an endemic disease. The, the news media, by and large, has done extraordinary work throughout this pandemic trying to digest and communicate to the public all this very complex information. But you can tell, Greg, from everything you were just saying, there's so much more ground still to be covered, not just because it's interesting news stories and all those things I think would make for very interesting news stories, but because having those investigations, those insights are actually going to prove critical for public health over the long term. Like the, the other, to my mind, largely untold story and, and one that I fear is going to loom larger as we get later into this year and even 2022, is what does the COVID pandemic look like in the poorer countries of the world? So beyond countries like the United States and in Europe, where we expect that access to vaccines will be relatively widespread, but countries with poor healthcare infrastructure that don't have the resources to procure the vaccines and the quantity that they need. And we could be looking at a pandemic that suddenly looks, again, like the HIV epidemic did in the early 2000s, where these, these gross global inequities. Uh, it, it seems like things may move in that direction. And if in fact that's going to be the case, that could be the next big global health story of the next several years. So, you know, thinking about, you know, diseases outside and health issues outside of COVID. I know um, the IHME, you, you all cover um, a lot of health issues and, and are you all having to, to balance, you know, attention to the pandemic um, while continuing to keep the public informed around, um, around other health issues and other areas? Yeah, yeah. I mean, needless to say, uh, the world's attention is squarely on COVID as it should be. Uh, as it's you know become uh, one of the leading causes of death in many in many places around the world, uh, but but that's it right you know we do have the big picture perspective on the complete uh, uh, set of causes of death, uh, and so increasingly we're trying to situate COVID you know on a list of other of other issues, uh, and you know starting to anticipate uh, you know drawing attention to. You know, the other things on that list as as hopefully knock on wood COVID subsides uh, so that's that's on our minds and then yes we've we've had a, a, a few different moments over the last year 
where we've you know been able to really concentrate our attention and, and media attention on some other very important health issues. Uh, you know, we, we were able to roll out a, a population forecast out to 2100 uh, that uh, that got a lot of attention uh, only because we, we really focused every, you know, all of our communications on that. Uh, similarly, we rolled out um, our, our annual global burden of disease uh, report uh, and I, I think have, you know, started to make some headway in drawing attention to the silent pandemic of, uh, you know, obesity and diabetes and, and uh, you know, other related issues. Um, so, you know, I think we're, we're laying the groundwork for, uh, shift, you know, shifting attention from COVID to other things. And, you know, and there's some people saying to us, uh, you know, we should expect global health will just fall off, uh, fall off the radar as COVID goes away. I, I think the opposite. I, I think that we have now, we have seen, utter proof that that health is inextricably linked to economy, it's inextricably linked to uh, determinants like education and, and gender and race. And uh, I, I think uh, we aren't going to have to work that hard to make the case for continued attention on uh, leading health issues. And that, that sort of um, leads me to, to my final question here. And, you know, what are the lessons learned? I mean, you know, Greg, you, you just pointed out that, I mean, you know, the way that everything is connected and the fact that, you know, our public health infrastructure is so critical to all aspects of our lives. I mean, that seems like something that, you know, hopefully will continue to be um, front and center. Um, but, you know, as we think about the next pandemic, which I know nobody wants to be thinking about that, you know, what are the, the, the core lessons um, that we, that you all have learned that can be applicable um, to the future? Andrew, do you have thoughts? I think, you know, what, what pandemic, COVID pandemic communications have reinforced to me is that the basic tenets of public relations 101 still hold, that the most important things are clear messages deployed consistently and repeated and repeated and repeated. And that's, that's, it's a fundamental truth of communications. And I think COVID has borne out how important that is. When you look at countries where the national leaders, the government leaders have used clear, consistent, strong messaging throughout, yeah, you see that the pandemic hasn't been as bad. I mean, best case scenario is a country like New Zealand mm -hmm. has very clear, consistent messages from their leaders from day one they're doing great. In other countries, unfortunately, including the United States, there has been mixed messaging. It's changed frequently. It hasn't been delivered across the board by our political leadership. We've heard different messages from different people at different times. And as a result, people aren't sure what to do. People are engaging in behaviors that aren't as safe. And the pandemic has gone down a much different path here. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with Andrew's point about uh, consistent messaging. I would elaborate on that to say that we've learned a lot about the nature of that consistent messaging, that that communicating the story uh, very simply is is really important in order for that message to land. So, you know, forecasting a pandemic is massively complex. If I foisted scientific papers on the general public, I, I don't think that would work. We've been able to communicate them in the form of uh, a very uh, digestible visualizations uh, that have have proved effective, very effective at certain points, uh, and in you know kind of stories uh, focused on those same those same messages. 
Um, I mentioned before that, you know, the importance of criticism and dialogue, but also the importance of persistence, uh, you know, the, the sort of having the courage of our convictions driven by science has been really important. Um, and I would also say that, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, our role assisting uh, decision makers, we've learned that having forecasts are really the, the, the ticket to ride and they, and they have to be carefully derived. This isn't just about dragging a, dragging a, a cell in, uh, in Microsoft Excel. It, it, it's, it's a lot uh, more complex than that. Um, but, but using forecasts uh, is what um, decision makers really rely on. And then when you can couch forecasts in terms of scenarios that quantify and visualize the trade-offs between specific options, uh, it helps them. It helps them do their job. And I, you know, again, I think these are all uh, elaborations on Andrew's very good point that uh, clear, consistent messages uh, delivered repeatedly, um, you know, is just absolutely vital in uh, public health communication and all communication. Okay, so so one last thing I'm going to ask based on this is you know we talked about behavior change and how successful that was you know in, in a country like New Zealand where people did adopt um, you know the the, the the protocols. Is there any has there been any conversation about how, how we define freedom in this country and how that's been such a challenge to behavior change because it's you know there's freedom to and freedom from and it seems like in this country we really focus on freedom to I have the freedom to not wear a mask or you know whatever it might be versus I have freedom to protect myself from um, disease so it, it, like is there has there been any conversation around that word and how that word needs to perhaps evolve in this country so that things like public health initiatives can be more successful I, I'd be very interested to see and I, I would be surprised if someone isn't already actively looking at this, actually doing some research on that very question mm -hmm. and how people's different perceptions of their personal freedoms and how those freedoms are discussed, literally the language we use, how that has informed their behaviors during this pandemic. Because I, I think you've hit on a very salient point there, which is within the United States, you're right, there is this freedom to culture where it's sort of deeply ingrained that we should have a very broad range of liberties can have an entire podcast debating what those are, <laughs> um, but that, that that lends itself to natural pushback against guidance telling people what they should be doing. Um, but I think you're getting at something that's that's just deeply ingrained in our culture, and and I'm not sure um, that there is a an easy way to to turn that around. I think it's really just about finding the ways to communicate most effectively in that framework, just practically. Well, Greg and Andrew, this was a great conversation. And I think if we brought you guys back into the podcast in three months, it'll be, it would be a completely different conversation. I think you're right. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll have a, hopefully we'll have you all back, honestly, at some point, uh, maybe to talk more about the herd immunity once we get closer to that. In the meantime, this is a conversation that we'll continue to have across our editorial channels. Um, but thank you both for making the time today. That would be and, great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank and, you, Arthi. And to our listeners, we'll be back soon with another episode. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.